So this is John uh, chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. I want you to think for just a second about the last time you experienced something that was just way better than you thought it was going to be. Um, Maybe it was you went to a movie and you heard good things about it, but you went and it blew you away. And through tears uh, or laughing or whatever, you come on the other side and you find yourself telling all your friends about it. You've got to go see this. It was so good. It was so intense. It was so moving. Maybe it was, um, maybe it was a birthday party from growing up that you kind of thought it was going to be okay. Maybe you got some RSVPs from your friends. But, but then everyone shows up and it's just awesome. And you get all the presents that you wanted. It was, just, it was way better than you thought it was going to be. Uh, maybe it was dinner the other night at the calf, right? I mean, you thought it was going to be this, and it was like this. No, but it was better than you thought. It was something maybe you, you, your mom made at home or you had grown up, and it was decent. It was edible, and you were excited about it. Anything. Uh, this summer, um, my family and I made a trip to South Texas, kind of central South Texas, uh, near Austin. And uh, we were heading down there for a wedding that I was performing. But um, Sarah, my wife, has an aunt and uncle who have a lake house near where we were ending up for the wedding. And they had, for years, been inviting us to come down to the lake house. And we just hadn't because kids plus long car rides, it just is hard. So we we hadn't done it. But we were going to be down there, and so we did it. And now... I, I knew that this aunt and uncle, um, I knew they had some financial means. And so, like, I wasn't expecting it was going to be, like, dead flies on the foam mattresses and kind of clearing out cobwebs. I, I pretty much knew it wasn't going to be that kind of lake house. But I'm telling you, I wasn't ready for what we drove into. Uh, we pulled out um, off the main highway and kind of went down a small road, as there tends to be around lakes, because the, you know, the shoreline goes in and out. And we pull up to a gate. I then got a code for the gate, entered in. And they lived in a small kind of community. There's about eight other houses. I hesitate at this point to even call them lake houses. They were big. And so we pull up to theirs, which is not the smallest one on the street. And 
it's really nice. And we start unloading our stuff and taking it inside, and it's getting nicer. And then after we get the bags unpacked and our kids unpacked and, you know, fruit roll-ups scraped out of their hair and all that, like, I go out on the back porch, and I can't believe how pretty it is. See, this lake that they were on, it's Lake LBJ outside of Austin. It's in a series of, of dammed up parts of, um, of the river. And this particular stretch of the river, there's a, there's a natural gas power plant on it. And because of that, they have to control the level of the lake all year long. It is like everything else around Austin can be desert and dry and, and, and drought. But this lake has to stay constant. It's, it's written into the Texas Constitution. Like, people will probably die before this lake's level will rise and and sink. So, what that means is that people can put their houses right on the lake. Like, the landscaping can flow over into the lake. It also means that, like, whereas on most lakes you have a boat dock that's kind of down a hill, they essentially have garages in the back of their house for their boats. And they had two boats, two wave runners, and, like, all of the stuff that you pull behind those things... That's like a kid's and 35-year-old's, 36's best imagination. It's just awesome. And her aunt and uncle are amazing cooks. And they had like, it's like the Sam's Isle of snacks in their, in their house and drinks. And I mean, like, I thought it was going to be good. I just had no idea it would be this good. And after the third day, they said, well, do, you, do y'all want to go over to the yacht club across the way? We're members there. I don't yacht club a lot, but I did this time. And so we went to the yacht club, which had a beach, and it had private cabanas, and people waited on us every 10 minutes to make sure we were okay. We were okay. And, um, you know, I got to the end of that, that week or in that trip, and I just, that refrain of, I just didn't know it was going to be this good. Just didn't know. In this passage, Jesus has taken uh, some of his disciples. Now, they are new disciples. If John's kind of chronology is indicative of anything, we're like into day three of these people following Jesus. They are green as his disciples. Now, they're kind of all in in what they know, and they're following him. But I'm sure that they are thinking, okay, the Messiah is here. Our Savior is here. We've said that we believe him. Jesus is saying we're going to go on a trip. He's going to, like, take us out to the wilderness, and we're going to go do some intense discipleship and memorize all the Bible verses. And, like, he's, he's the best campus minister ever, and so we're going to go do that. And instead, Jesus takes them to a wedding with tons of joy and laughter and celebration. And I wonder if when they were leaving that wedding, after they saw this miracle and 150 gallons of wine, if there wasn't part of them that was saying, man, I I thought it was going to be good, but I had no idea following Jesus was going to be this good. And I think that tonight we need to see that Jesus wants us to see that he really is that good. That he really isn't this chintzy savior who's just trying to like kind of make our life miserable, but promising all this great stuff one day. Jesus is really good. In the way that we access his goodness, and we're going to see in this passage, is through believing in him. Is by trusting him. His goodness is immeasurable. 
But faith and believing Him is the way to access it. And we're going to see that in three ways. They're before you on your handout right there. But first, we're going to see that we're going to look at belief in the midst of ordinary. Second, belief in the midst of the extraordinary, uh, unknown. And third, belief in the midst of belief. So first, belief in the midst of the ordinary. So I don't know everyone in this room yet. I don't know all of your deep, dark secrets and closet stories and all of that yet. As creepy as I can say that. Um, But my guess is that most of you would say that most of the time your life feels very ordinary. Like very mundane. Just kind of doing the stuff of life. Going to class. Eating meals. uh, Being late on homework. Procrastinating. Talking with friends. Staying up too late. Uh, Most of the time, you're not tipping the scales on emotionalism. You're not just like running it at either either end. Um, Some of you are just like always super happy and the rest of us are really skeptical of you. We don't know what to do with you. Um, But like most of us, for most of life, is just pretty ordinary. And and maybe that's left you wondering, I don't know your, your experience, but maybe that's left you wondering, if you're a follower of Jesus... Am I okay? Is there more to this than what I've currently got going on? Or if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're thinking about it or you're here because somebody drug you here for the floats, like, do I have to become that? Do I have to become the most emotional kind of version of myself to follow Jesus? I've seen things on TV or I've kind of maybe been to churches where it's, you know, everybody's jumping around and hands and all that. Like, is that what following Jesus requires? And what I want us to do is just for a second, look at how ordinary the stuff of this passage is. The first thing I want us to see is that Jesus did ordinary things. So Jesus himself, though God, and though does incredible miraculous things, he's an ordinary person. He goes to a wedding. Um, throughout the gospel, he, he goes to dinner with people. He sits with normal people. He talks with them. He interacts with them. Uh, Weddings were common. They were special, just like they are in our day, but they happen all the time. It's not like a crazy supernatural thing. The second thing is that Jesus uses ordinary things to do extraordinary things. But look at what he uses here, water in jars. Um, He's not mixing potions backstage. He's not asking the servants to go to like the crazy medicinal springs over here and bring back some of that water. He just looks and he's like, all right, give me some uh, water. And he also uses these jars. Now, let me do a little sidebar for a second. It says something about those jars. It says that they were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, a lot of scholars and commentators that I read about this passage, um, a lot of them... Some of them say um, that Jesus is trying, in using these jars for his purposes, he's kind of saying, look, I'm here now. That the old Jewish religion that, that has been around to date is now passing away. I come to fulfill all that it was pointing toward. Okay, now, I actually think that's true. That's why Jesus came. But, you know, we don't get anything else about that. They kind of mention that about the jars, but then that's, that doesn't pick up as a theme of the passage. And so I think it's at least possible, if not likely, that John, in describing these jars in this little Jewish town, is just kind of saying, like, yeah, those were the Jewish rites of purification jars, and Jesus grabbed those, and he told the servants to go fill them up with water. 
Jesus is just using the common stuff of this town to do very uncommon and extraordinary things. Next, Jesus works with ordinary people. Look down the passage at who's there. His mother, pretty ordinary, doesn't get a lot more ordinary than having a mom. Um, His disciples, the people that Jesus had just met. Um, These servants, right? It's a wedding, it's a feast, it's a celebration. People would have had to help put that on, just like they do in our day. Um, He works with ordinary people. He didn't bring the magic show and the trapeze artists. Like, there's no sleight of hand going on. It's normal people. And finally, I want you to see that the actual thing that Jesus asks the servants to do is like a very simple, ordinary task. Here's what he says. Take, sorry, fill the jars with water, uh, draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. Fill, draw, take. Jesus is not saying in this passage, you have to surrender everything all and like be all in on me and super intense right now. He's not saying you have to sell everything you own and be an ascetic and have minimal or no possessions and follow me. He just looks at the people around him and he's like, hey, uh, y'all over there, do this right here. Take a little bit to the master of the feast over there. It's just ordinary. It's a simple, ordinary thing. So do you want to know what following Jesus, what believing Him looks like? Do you want to know uh, what a huge part of the Christian life looks like? It looks really ordinary. And I hope that underwhelms you in the best kind of way. I hope that meets you at a place where you can say, if if you've been trying to live the frenetic, just always on fire for Jesus, hyper doing this and trying always to like get closer to him by my actions and all these stuff. If that's kind of the world you've been inhabiting as someone who's trying to follow Jesus, I want you to hear Jesus in this passage say, no, following me is so much more ordinary. Yes, I'm going to do extraordinary things in you and around you. But I'm just calling you to, to be ordinary. Trusting Jesus uh, is going to look a lot more like you doing the very plain things of life and letting him take, of all, take care of all the extraordinary things that you have going on around you. It's going to look like you sitting with Jesus in the midst of the breakup or the failed relationship or the relationship that has never started that you really wish would start or the ask person to ask you out who's never asked you out and just sitting in that sadness or in that frustration and saying, all right, Jesus, I'm here. And over time, he's going to work in you, and he's going to develop patience in you, and he's going to be close to you through his people and in other ways. Trusting Jesus and following him uh, may mean that in the midst of that sadness, you don't flee to the other things to try to numb it. You don't 
um, try to flee to busyness and productivity. If I can just keep myself busy enough, I won't have to deal with how mad or frustrated or sad I am. You don't flee to, to drinking too much in excess or, or whatever if you're underage to drinking. Um, you don't flee to shopping. You don't go to all these different things which are out there as temptations to try to numb it. You just sit there. In a lot of days, y'all, that's going to feel very ordinary and very boring. And in this passage, Jesus is all about that stuff. And so if you feel ordinary, you're probably a good candidate for Jesus to be at work in your life. This weekend, um, Saturday night, uh, there was a a boxing match that I had uh, really wanted to watch. I'm not a big boxing fan because newsflash, like boxing is kind of not a thing anymore. Um, But this one fight had like a real kind of weird aura around it. And here's why. Um, the, the two guys in it, one of them's name was Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor has kind of dominated the mixed martial arts ultimate fighting championship scene for a few years. And he's awesome. Some of you are tuning out, like kind of hang with me even if you think this is ridiculous. Um, and in the other corner was Floyd, Floyd Money Mayweather. Now, Floyd Mayweather is probably, arguably, but I think probably the most successful, definitely the most popular boxer of the last 20 or so years. Until Saturday, he had won 49 fights and lost zero. He's the man. And he gets the nickname Money because he's got a lot of it. When he stepped into the ring Saturday night, he made $200 million for one fight. So, everyone, all the analysts and the experts, they pretty much figured that Mayweather would win because he's a boxer and McGregor's more of a scrapper. He's a, he's a wrestler and kind of a fighter that way. So everybody was thinking Mayweather would win, but everybody who cared was wondering, like, but how good is McGregor going to do? Can he put up a fight at all or is he just going to get clocked in the first round? So, there was a problem for me because that fight was only on pay-per-view. And it cost $100. Somebody's got to pay Floyd Mayweather. Brent Corbin was not going to do that. Because $100 to me is like a lot. <laughs> so I was sitting there on the couch, really wanting to watch this fight. But I resolved. And I said, I, I literally said, God, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go on to Twitter or Periscope and try to find someone streaming it through their computer I think that's immoral and illegal, so I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to be content with getting up Sunday morning and reading it in the newspaper and and trusting you that that will be enough. Amen. Open up Twitter, go to the search bar, Mayweather McGregor, watch the fight, stream through Periscope. All ten rounds of it. Why do I tell you that? Not a huge deal, right? Like, I don't think anyone is suffering from me doing that. I don't think that was like an earth-shaking thing. Not a big deal. But was it important? Yes. Because it was an ordinary thing that I did not trust the Lord in. And according to this passage, ordinary things matter. I'm not trying to highlight my sin or be the vulnerable pastor guy. I'm just telling you that the ordinary is so much more of what we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis than the extravagant extraordinary. 
Jesus cares about the ordinary, but there's more in this passage. We get an insight into belief, into faith in the midst of things that are unknown. Um, What I'm talking about now is verse 3 and and following. And it says this, that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus' statement to, to his mother Mary, it feels pretty caustic. It feels pretty raw, kind of like a shutdown statement here. Um, and we're going to break it down. He, he says, um, woman, I mean, I imagine Mary hearing this and like if she's a junior high girl, she's like, what is wrong with you? Or if she, I don't know, I was in my head thinking about this. She's like a CrossFit guy. She's like, whoa, chill, bro. Um, Mary, Jesus says, woman, uh, my hour's not yet come. What does this have to do with me? So woman... We hear this as a chauvinistic expression, um, kind of like, woman, get me some dinner or some other terrible thing that hopefully you haven't heard said personally, but you can understand that. And no one really knows the tone that Jesus said this. Unfortunately, when you're writing on papyri in the first century, you don't get tone and inflection very well. Um, And so there's speculation around this. I'm going to grant that. But we can take clues from this word showing up one other time in John's gospel. Jesus actually says this exact same thing to his mom again at the end of John's gospel, chapter 19, verses 26. And in that setting, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And his mother Mary comes with John, the author of John's gospel. And Jesus looks at his mom and looks at John and he says, Woman, behold your son. What Jesus is doing in that moment of supreme care and love for his mother is saying, As the oldest son, I have to take care of you, woman, mom. John here is going to take care of you. There's an, it's, there's an endearing nature to it. And so again, that might be a little bit speculative, but... Maybe that's imported into this. Woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So what about that second part? Well, if we're going to read this passage in front of us, just kind of in isolation, apart from the rest of John's gospel, which, um, newsflash, that's not really the best way to read the Bible, is just to kind of pluck things out of it and try to make sense of them. You read passages within the greater context. And so if we just read that on its own, it's kind of confusing and weird and unknown. But when you zoom out and look at the rest of John's gospel, Jesus talks about his hour 12 times. And we can find from those times put together that when he talks about his hour, he is talking about the hour, the moment when he would be delivered up and crucified Before God at the cross. When he would give over his life to be an acceptable payment to God for the sins of the world. When Jesus would undergo this excruciatingly painful and and humiliating death, that is his hour. And so when, when, when we see this, we have to read it through John 12, 27, when Jesus prays to God and says this. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So when Jesus looks at his mom and says, Not yet. My hour's not yet come. What does this have to do with me? Most likely, a good reading of this would be, Not yet, mom. Because once... Once I begin my public ministry and once things begin to be public and people start finding out who I am and what I'm saying, they're going to kill me. And even though I know that's what I came to do, I came to die for sinners, I'm scared, Mom. Hold on, Mom, not yet. My hour's not yet come. And yet we balance that with Jesus at the end of his, his life saying, Father, it's for this hour that I came. So as the one who was greeted by the angel telling her that she would give birth to the Savior of the world, Mary knows that whatever else Jesus was coming to do and however he was going to save the world, she didn't know. But here's what she knew. This is not a normal child. My son is not a normal person. He is the Savior of the world. And whatever else that salvation means... It has to involve saving people from the shame that's about to happen to this family whose party is going to end. And that was a huge cultural faux pas. Huge. It would be like us planning a wedding reception and kind of like forgetting to get a venue. It's just, it would be unthinkable even. People would go into massive debt over running out of wine or other families would jump in to help them. You just didn't do it. And so Mary is thinking, they can't run out of wine. Because wine, throughout the Bible, is a picture of joy. And if the wine ends, the joy ends and the celebration ends. Jesus, I don't know why else you came, but I know that you care about this. And from that place, she turns to the servants after Jesus said, not yet. And she looks at the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. Before we move on to the last point, I'm just going to apply this to us for just a minute. The way that Mary says this, in the words that John uses here, the Greek words that he uses as he records this, have, the, have a way of saying to us, hey, whatever you're going through, in the midst of whatever crisis you are in, whatever Jesus tells you, do it. It's as if Mary's looking down through the corridor of time, the hallway of time, to people all along the way and saying, I don't know exactly what you're going through, but whatever Jesus says, you can trust Him. He's good. Do it. Some of us think that... Some of us think that in real life, Jesus actually came to turn wine into water. We actually kind of look at Jesus through a, like squinted eyes and think that he actually came to make my life miserable. He came to take the joy away. He is a kill joy. He, he doesn't want me to be happy. He doesn't want me to have friends. He certainly doesn't want me to be married. And you kind of look at Jesus through this lens of, of skepticism and cynicism or anger or whatever. And if this is you, I don't want to minimize your experience. I don't want to discount it or say it's not real at all. But what I do want you to do is between you and Jesus, 
I want you to put down the 150 gallons of wine. And I want you to see him through those, through those bottles, through those jars, and say, you know, whatever else my situation might mean, that 150 gallons of wine at this party tells me that Jesus does care about my joy. Because he cared about theirs. And he could do something about it. And even though he may not have done something about my lack of joy yet, he can do it. And so, Jesus, I'm going to sit here and wait for you to do something. I'm putting the wine between me and you. Another thing that I want us to not miss is how much we kind of hate what this passage is saying. Um, Because the wine and the joy shows up after Mary believes and after the servants have this obedient response. After. And often, if we'll, we'll be honest, I think we want it the other way around. Uh, we want God to fix our situations and make our life good, and then we promise Him that we'll follow Him. If you'll just do this and this, 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 then I'll be good with you, and then I'll stop doing all these other things. Or then I'll follow you. If you just will take care of this, if you'll just get rid of my sadness, or if you'll just give me a boyfriend or girlfriend to help me pass this test, or uh, let that homework extension happen, like, if whatever it is, God, if you will just make my life good, then I will obey you. And I don't want to kind of go too far down this path because you get into thoughts of works, righteousness, and, and pleasing God through your obedience. But what I do want to be very clear about is that oftentimes... Following Jesus means trusting Him to do an ordinary but maybe hard thing and having to trust Him that His joy and His blessing will come after that. There literally is no more wine until Mary, through Jesus' not yet statement, trusts Him enough to say, do whatever He says, the servants do it, the party goes on, the joy is extended for a long time. But it comes after that. It comes after the faith, after the obedience. Mary is telling us that the cross of Jesus, she's indicating that the cross of Jesus is both the clearest picture of Jesus' commitment to us and love for us, and it's the fullest picture of grounding our, our ability to trust Him. Because look, think about this. In the hour of his greatest need and greatest temptation, in his hardest moment, he did not cut corners and try to jump around and somehow short-circuit the process. Jesus went through it all the way to the cross. He endured pain and, and, and suffering and abandonment from everyone around him so that he could prove to you, I will never do that to you. In the midst of your pain and seeming abandonment and suffering, I will never leave you. God is with you because I was separated from God so that you don't have to be. He's with us. And finally and lastly and much shorter, I want us to see belief in the midst of belief. What do I mean by that? Well, the disciples were already believing and trusting and following Jesus This is John chapter 2. It's after John chapter 1 where they start following him. 
And in verse 11, it says this, that after all the miracle happens, it says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So which is it? Did they already believe in him or are they now believing in him? Yes. In John's gospel, when he talks about what it means to believe in Jesus, what faith looks like, he uses a word which is translated in our English translations, fine, as believe in him. But what it literally says is believe into him. That these disciples believed into him. Now, we don't talk this way. But John is teaching us that belief in Jesus, belief into Jesus, is trusting ourselves to Jesus in a repeated, living, daily movement akin to breathing or walking. Trusting Jesus, like discipleship, is not probably going to be full of a whole bunch of things that you have to do in the future to, to work your way to God and do, be a good Christian. Trusting Jesus means doing the ordinary stuff of life that He calls us to do. Belief is exercising faith in the midst of all of that. And the good news of Jesus, then, is for, for people who aren't yet Christians, if that's you... You have to hear that Jesus is saying, I'm absolutely calling you to not trust yourself. I'm calling you to trust me in the way that I say to live and what I've done for you. And he's also in the very same moment looking at people already following him and saying, believe in me, believe into me, exercise faith bit by bit, day by day in the ordinary stuff of life. You can trust him. Because even though... The wine will run out in all of your circumstances one day. In Jesus, we have access to in a relationship with the winery. His storehouse doesn't run out. It's forever. It's infinite. You can go all in on it. I've got four little girls, which means our house is never quiet. And it is always dramatic, always. And almost every night, one of our girls gets scared before they go to bed because of, I mean, anything. Like bizarre stuff, y'all. Really bizarre stuff. And so I get summoned back upstairs through screaming or crying or something. And I go sit at the edge of one of their beds. And they say, Daddy, I'm scared because this white cheetah panther uh, is here in the room. I'm like, well, okay. Catherine... Do you know that daddy loves you? Yeah. Catherine, is daddy really strong? Yes. (laughs) Catherine, can daddy take care of the white cheetah panther in the room? Yes. Catherine, I'm going to ask you to trust me. You'll be okay tonight. We can go to sleep. Whatever white cheetah panther is in your life. Whatever thing you're looking down the barrel at, whatever sadness or frustration or lost relationship or whatever it is, Jesus is with you saying, you can trust me. Trust me. I came for you. I love you. You can trust me. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would enable us to do the very thing you've called us to do, and that's to trust you. So give us faith to believe that you are good in the midst of our situations, our joys and our sorrows. 
We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.